Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chill, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I can't really complain. Um, we have officially wrapped up our series on, I guess, the rise of the Japanese empire or the rise of Japanese nationalism, which um, really took Japan. Yeah, the modern, the creator of the modern nation state of Japan. And man, it was harder than I thought it was going to do to do that. I don't know Seriously. what your input is. No, 100%. And and I feel like we could have kept going too. But, you know, I think we, we got the point across of like, where did Japan start? How did it get to where it was going? But we still don't have definitive answers on like, what does it mean to be a nation state? I don't, even though we didn't really get answers, I mean, it was still worthwhile going to, through the Hell exercise yeah. of, of doing an episode like that or doing a series like that, because obviously there's so many rabbit holes that you could really go down to. And it's, you know, the goal of that series was to identify, you know, different national trends that um, ultimately created or led to the rise of fanatic nationalism in the 1920s and 30s prior to world war ii and mm -hmm. you know i feel like we uh did it i don't, I don't want to say i don't want to give us too much credit and say do it a good job because i know we went off a lot <laughs> of different rabbit holes but we've got praise on it and we've also got criticism for it um yep. probably deservedly on, on both fronts i'm, yep. I'm sure there's different <laughs> things we could have done better on it 100%. but then again it was worthwhile going through that exercise of like doing a series like that because we've never done a series. Not on purpose, at least. <laughs> yeah. On purpose, at least. But I guess we're going to use that experience to do other countries. That was the, the whole plan all along was to, uh, you know, practice. I don't want to say practice using Japan, but kind of use the Japan as like a jumping off point. And, you know, we, we set our sights next to do one on russia or eastern european countries in general that was kind right. of like the next jumping stone on that and and we also wanted to take a break uh for a moment because we definitely did get exhausted from doing all the research on um on japan and we were like hey let's just do like a you know a modern like you know geopolitics episode just go back to our roots and like talk about something that's going on in the news right now uh, and that was totally our intention. Uh, and then the news happened and it basically lined right up with, you know, our idea to move on to, to Russia and, and, and just Eastern European countries, generally speaking. So I think that's, that's, <laughs> it's like there was a sign out there. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to take a, a, like a week break, um, and, uh, kind of figure out like how we wanted to tackle the next steps. But then, um, Vladimir Putin comes and he starts to invade Europe. 
<laughs> aka right. knew the Hitler. No, obviously, right. things have escalated. I'm being facetious and silly. Things have, um, I guess, been slowly escalating since Biden has. Well, let me let me pull this back a little bit because I just want to talk about like the general division between conservatives and liberals in the United States and how they view foreign policy, which is mm-hmm. kind of funny and a little bit disturbing at the same time. So on the right, you have this really, you have this notion of being fed up with Middle Eastern wars and you want to divert our resources to combat China. Ultimately, right. China is the great geopolitical threat. They're on the mm-hmm. verge of, of invading Taiwan. We got to be ready. They're, they are, aka, genociding Muslims, like conservatives. Which in itself is ironic. Like because... conservatives, like the same people who are talking about like ban, out, out banning Muslims from entering the country are now concerned right. about Muslims in China. On the flip side, you have the American liberal. And the American mm-hmm. liberal is, um, you know, their great enemy is the is Russia. Russia yeah, controls Russia. America. Russia is pulling the strings on the Republican Party. And you have this kind of really weird, fanatic obsession with Russia. Anything that bad happens in the world is all Russian. It's Russian fault. And it's funny because it's like they're the new classic Cold War warriors. Mm-hmm. So everything that ever happens bad in the world is like Vladimir Putin and his cronies trying to make these improvements on Western Europe and destroy liberalism across the world. Right. Um, so you have like this weird hawkish mentality on both sides of the political aisle. And I'm just here saying, and I think you would probably agree with this. Hey, we can talk to both of them. You know, like we don't have yeah. to go to war or have to live mm-hmm. under the looming threat of nuclear war because – a war with either one of those countries, a war with Russia or a war with China, would mean the end of human Honestly, civilization. And we don't even have to go to the end of human civilization either. It's just not a great idea, both economically and you know geopolitically, for us to be adversarial with such large superpowers. You know, like, like they're not quite you know the United States. And like, let's be real: if we did a comparison, we'd probably crush them. Um, but the point is that it. We don't have to get to that point either. You know, like all the steps that lead up to that are a problem too. You know, like sanctions as an example and how sanctions hurt just normal, regular people here in the United States rather than their intended consequence, which is to, you know, wave the finger at, you know, places like Russia and China, which coincidentally we do use sanctions on both of those countries as a tool to, you know, tell them to stop fucking around. So I, I, to I punish the pun, the, yeah. is a tool to punish. Thus, ultimately, the civilian population, right, um, of both countries, <laughs> of, of, of both countries, and right. you know, sanctions are just kind of like the first step between things get really escalated. Um, right. That's what a lot of history shows us. Like sanctions, you start with sanctions, and then you move on to war. Eventually, you know, I love right. like the, I love the the statement. You know, when trade stops between a country. That's when militaries start crossing borders, or I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. it, but when trade yeah. stops going through borders, and that's when militaries go start going through borders. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that the Biden administration is playing a risky game right now with with Russia right now, um, um, kind of poking at the bear. And it's not that Russia is a power that is 
equivalent to the United States. No, it's not. Let's just be frank. And in a conventional war, the United States would most likely win in we a conventional war. However, right. the, the problem isn't conventional a conventional war. The problem is, is that Russia has nuclear arms pointed at us at all times. Right. They've, they've and got more you bet your ass if, if things got out of hand or, you know, if they've just reached the limit, we're talking about the end of a major city in New York, I mean, or New York, a major city in the United <laughs> States being right. decimated. Yeah, we may take Moscow down with it, but I mean, is is taking is down worth Moscow <laughs> worth yeah. losing New York City or San Francisco or, or San Francisco? Yeah. I'm well, maybe San Francisco. I don't <laughs> um, feel free to sh- shoot down California cities. Um, now we have a lot of listeners no. from California, no. so. <laughs> I'm going to take away like 25% of our listener base. No, However, <laughs> um, um, I don't think it's worth it. Now, the current situation with Biden declaring a state of emergency uh, due to some Russian hacks and due to um, just, you know, their uh, Russia amassing troops on the border between Russia and Ukraine. I'll be completely honest. I don't really know too much about the hacking and cyberspace stuff. However, I do know a little bit more about the situation in uh, Crimea and the situation in Donbass. And I think it's worth going through a – going through kind of like a crash course of how the Russia-Ukraine conflict or the Ukraine-Russia conflict became violent because I think most – mainstream news outlets they are always starting this story at the year 2014 they usually start this story with the annexation of crimea and after that you know there's no history before that and i don't think i don't there's (laughs) no good guy in this like you know whenever you offer kind of a a a something that's an opinion that's outside the mainstream you're always quickly called like at least in the west a you know a Russian asset or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think both sides are bad. They're all bad governments. But the number one thing that that the corporate media um, fails to report is that Ukraine is really not one nation. It's two nations. So Western well, I mean, Ukraine, technically, it's one nation. Let's be real. But it's like, one nation, but it's a multi-nation country like Canada. You know. Right. Canada has their French-speaking far their their French-speaking uh, province, and then their English-speaking provinces. So there's two cultures that are within Canada. Well, the same thing applies to Ukraine. So right. the mostly Ukraine-speaking part of is located in Western Ukraine, and then uh, the Russian-speaking population is in Eastern Ukraine. And the, the reason for that is just a very sad history of just like forced migrations and genocides. And the end of the Cold War, it brought on a lot of new complex problems for both Russia and the Ukraine. The, the main problem being that the present borders of Ukraine don't really represent any type of real nation. It's like it's like kind of like an African state. That right. was or, or created a middle, by your middle, e- middle Eastern states too, or a Middle Eastern state, but instead of the boundaries being drawn up by you know European colonists, they were drawn up by 
Lenin and Stalin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what they would do is that they would export Russian speakers to other Soviet republics in order to quash any type of national sentiment. And because of this, after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was popular opinion in Russia that Ukraine was indeed part of Russia. So Ukrainian independence in the 1990s wasn't really a popular idea. Vladimir Putin himself is a believer in the in the uh, triune people thesis. And what this thesis argues is that Eastern Slavs are one overarching community. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're all descendants of the original people of Rus, a culture that was centered in Kiev a thousand years ago. So in this view, the modern division of Eastern Slavs into, um, you know, things like Belarusians and Ukrainians and Russians reflects only regional and and linguistic variants of a common ancestry. Mm -hmm. But these aren't distinct and separate nationalities. And this is something that's common among Russian nationalists. Even Alexei Navalny believes in this stuff. Alexei Mm -hmm. Navalny is is Putin's, you know, big opposition leader, right? The opposition leader who, I guess, you know, allegedly he tried to kill. But, oh, I think they've confirmed that no. that he was poisoned. Well, they definitely <laughs> confirmed that he was poisoned. I, you know, there's, I don't want to get too into that, but that's a different conversation. And I think we had an episode about it, so you can check that out. Yeah, we did. Um, well, look, all right. So l- let me let me just um get this straight, and and hopefully, you know, I don't want to like take an adversarial position against what what it is that you're saying, but I, I do want to figure out like like what's going on here because it, it does sound a little bit like double speech to me and I'm, I'm just kind of formulating this idea in my head like, like today as we were doing the research and, and you're telling me you know earlier you know in, in the show you, you you mentioned that there are this there's a case to be made about two ukraines right we got the eastern and the western ones right like you said and and the primary distinguishment between the two is uh like a like a linguistic and maybe a slight cultural differences did i get that right yeah, they ultimately okay. believe they have the same ethnic origin because Rus was actually centered like where they consider the birth of that civilization of the Eastern Slavs before uh-huh. their their capital, like their heritage, it all stems from Kiev, which Kiev, is the right, capital exactly. of Ukraine. Right. And okay, they so, eventually, you know, there was part of, you know, a, a you know, a Russo alliance that, you know, considered, you know, back whenever the hell. But gotcha. those gotcha. that's where like the princes of Moscow come from that eventually mm-hmm. formed Russia. Um, but they, they consider them all like the same connected peoples rather than same, same different people. ethnic groups. Yeah. Gotcha. Same all, all the same people. But now you just tell me about the triune people idea, right? This triune people thesis that Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Russians are all kind of the same people. Yeah. And Putin is a proponent of this. So doesn't the triune people argument kind of hurt, you know, this like stated stance of Putin and Russia of, quote, like defending the Russian people that are in these Ukrainian areas? So primarily Crimea, like would be a good example, but now currently Donbass. So I guess what I'm trying to think out loud about is like, if they're all the same triune people, where does this strong delineation of like, these people are Russians? in Ukraine. Where is that coming from if they're all technically the same people? 
Because according to this triune thing, Russia's defending the triune people in Ukraine from the triune people. Basically defending people from themselves. Well, I'm not agreeing with that thesis. I'm just saying that's what right. I believe. Not, neither am I. I'm just trying to figure out, like, what the hell's going on here? You know, like, <laughs> doesn't it sound like a little bit of doublespeak? Because like, I'm not so super certain that this holds water. Well, you know, because the any kind of debate over ethnicity and nationality is always very murky. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're tracing back lineage a thousand years ago, it it's very difficult to do to, like, trace the sure. actual ethnic origin of a country, as we have been trying to say within our last series in Japan. Like, it's very right. difficult to go back, or with China as well, like with, you know, going back sure. to the Han people, both those, epi- both those episodes where we do more of, like, the ethnic origins. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of uh, kind of pointless to try to trace your heritage back to some um, super or mega culture. I don't agree with those sentiments, and they're often used by modern day pop uh, politicians to justify some type of action that they're doing. So, and that's and that's what I'm trying to attribute here to, like, you know, yeah, the, so the conflict that's going on. Is it contradictory? Right, and I guess right right now where I'm at and. Honestly, my mind might change after this episode, but, you know, where I'm at right now is that, you know, I agree that borders are definitely bullshit, like, all over the world, <laughs> uh, but especially in places like these, but but geopolitical interests are actually very real, um, and this doesn't strike me at all as, like, a like this conflict doesn't strike me as a defense of the people, you know, the Russians that are in Donbass or the Russians that are in Crimea, but rather a defense of a geopolitical interest. Yeah. You know, so Donbass is actually dominated by heavy industry, things like coal mining and metallurgy. So the region Donbass takes its name from the abbreviation of the term Donetsk Coal Basin, Donbass, right? So, and Donbass actually represents one of the largest coal reserves in Ukraine, having something like 60 billion tons of coal in reserve. So it's, it's, it's a, you know... It's of geopolitical interest because of the natural resources there. Oh, I don't think you can ignore that. Oh, oh, absolutely. This is all geopolitical interest. It's all like, mm-hmm. you know, drawing lines in the sand. But yeah, I mean, it's, they're using it as a pretext. I don't really think that governments care that much about like the outside populations. It's all just, you know, resources and and Machiavellian like, in this nature. So, exactly. How can um, I use con- this for my advantage? Right? So, contra- so contradictions in... You know, this type of logic, you know, I think that you're just going to come across them when they're used for some type of Machiavellian reason. Like they're only using these types of logics, uh, you know, this logic of like, oh, like we're all one people. We need to unite um, when it's politically convenient, you know, when that's not convenient. Then it's like, oh, well, you know, there's a separation. There was a linguistic separation (laughs) at one point in history that (laughs) kind of, you know, we're still kind of the same, but there was some kind of culture. And now the West is taking advantage of that. Exactly. But, um, I mean, look, from from my reading at this point, though, I see this, like, like idea of this, like, liberation of Donbass as more of a way to gain that geopolitical influence over those strategic resources. Kind of like how Crimea's annexation was probably more of a way to gain access to the Black Sea than it was about Russians. Uh, Russian people in that region, um, but let's—I I guess maybe we just jump right well, into. Let's like, put the a pin. Let's put a pin in Crimea. Let's let's put a, a pin in Crimea because I do want to talk about that. For but sure. Yeah. I, I think another problem that we need to address um, that was created after the Cold War was that there is no more agreed security architecture 
for Russia to replace the Warsaw Pact. Okay. Mm -hmm. Therefore, from the moment the Soviet Union collapses in August of 1991, Russia sought to be the dominant influence over Ukraine's uh, national security and and economic policies, just like you said. Um, And the Western part of Ukraine resisted them from the get-go. In the early 90s, Russia and uh, Kiev argued over issues like the status of the Black Sea Fleet. But also a really big point of contention was the disposition of nukes located within Ukrainian territory. Of course, because yeah. Mm-hmm. The the U.S. and Russia at that time, like in the 90s, the U.S. and Russia had a, at least a political leadership, had a, a much better relationship like with Boris Yeltsin and Bill Clinton. Um, they were jointly pressuring Ukraine to give up their nukes. And mm-hmm. when Ukraine signed the trilateral agreement surrendering their nuclear weapons what it what it did is that it kind of screwed russia over in the future because it removed the primary obstacle between ukraine creating a relationship with the united states Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i didn't actually know that uh ukraine had nukes until before today that's interesting yeah, they had um, but nukes, you, but, but, they but gave you, them you mentioned um, you mentioned Sevastopol and Crimea. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about um, when Russia and Ukraine like did that deal uh, to to keep Russia's navy base in Crimea. Can can you tell me a little bit about that? So um, after um, Leonid Kukma was elected president of Ukraine in 1994, he was actually from Eastern Ukraine, and he was born. He, he was. His base was was pro-Russian, and he was still a defender of Ukraine's sovereignty, but also supported trade with Russia, which mm-hmm. diffused the separatist sentiment that was that was in Crimea because there had always been a separatist uh, movement in Crimea. Um, the biggest omission from the corporate press about Crimea, is that it is in fact very Russian. It's always like when Yukonovich was was ultimately uh, forcibly removed from office. Like if you just look, listen to like the interviews of people on the street in Crimea, it's all like these people are terrorists. Um, you know, we need to become part of Russia. Like you know, they voted to become Russian. Crimea has been part of Russia since the time of Catherine the Great in the 18th century. Right. It was only transferred from Russia to the Ukraine by Khrushchev in 1954, who was from Ukraine and was his intention of, of transferring it was to just pander to his Ukrainian support. And mm-hmm. at the time, you know, when this transfer took place, it didn't really matter because everything was ran out of Moscow anyway. Right. It's so who gives a shit? Yeah, who gives a shit if Crimea is Ukrainian? It's right. all it you know, the it's still the Ukrainian um, it's still a a Soviet state, so it right. doesn't matter that they have. It doesn't it's, matter. It's kind of like arguing transfer. over. It's 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 kind of like arguing over who owns the Statue of Liberty. Is it New York or New Jersey? Well, technically, it's in New Jersey's waters, but it's New York City's. And like, who the fuck cares who owns the Statue of Liberty? Because it's all the United States anyway. I mean, it, it cares to some New Jerseyans like me, but you know. <laughs> um, but this same idea, right? 
yeah it's, with it's the same same concept like who cares what what province or whatever it's in where the border is drawn right mm-hmm. like it's not that big of a deal maybe it's a big deal for the people who live there as far as like i don't know i'm not an expert in how the soviet union went what about like giving funds to these different areas but nevertheless i mean that was probably the motivation because i'm sure there was some level of like additional funding that went into crimea uh or ukraine because they had the crimea crimea in it but there's always a reason yeah there's always a reason but um when the soviet union evaporates the people who live in crimea wanted to be part of russia and to put a band-aid over this issue they make a deal in 1997 in which Russia recognizes Ukraine's borders and in return, Ukraine agreed to lease Russia the naval base at Sevastopol in Crimea. Okay. So they, they set up a deal to like le- just lease out the land. And that's that's what Russia really wanted anyway, right? Just access to the, to the Black Sea, right? Yeah. And that naval base is huge. So Russia ha- has always had a challenge of getting a warm water port. So mm-hmm. losing that port would be really really bad for them it would almost it, it would be devastating to them if mm-hmm. they've lost mm-hmm. that if they lost that navy base all right so so now now we're basically in in the mid 90s and and they've you're telling me russia works out this deal with ukraine where they're like all right you can keep crimea but we get to you know lease some land for this warm water port and you know at the same time you know the us and uh russia had both been pressuring uh ukraine to like you said, uh, uh, get rid of their nukes and like they're changing things. So at this point, you know, Russia and the U.S. were kind of like on good terms with each other. Would you agree with that at this at this moment? I mean, the political leadership were, were on good terms, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. say. So this is a whole real kind of sad history as well. I mean, there's just a lot of sad histories in Eastern Europe and this part of the world. But after the Soviet Union fell, um it wasn't like a happy ending. Russia went into a period of absolute poverty when the Soviet mm-hmm. Union fell. And listen, man, I am no proponent of communism or anything or the economic system of, of the Soviet Union. Like, obviously, it imploded at the end, but there were really terrible consequences for the people who lived in Russia at that time. And the level of corruption that took place in the Russian government and Ukraine, for that matter, is at a level that is incomprehensible. Like the level of how just cronies of Boris Yeltsin just were purchasing up state-run industries. Um, it was the government was basically controlled by the mob, and I think a lot of Russians saw this corruption as a product of of liberalism as like in, you know, U.S. international liberalism, like the U.S. Mm -hmm. Russians were looking for guidance at the end of the, at the end of the Soviet Union. They welcomed the introduction of capitalism and the introduction of free markets. And they were looking at the United States as an example of this. And what they got was the worst, worst part of crony capitalism. Like that's what Mm -hmm. they got. And it's estimated Mm -hmm. that, you know, I think the estimates around like three million people died in Russia um, That's due to starvation. Sad. Like That's during sad. that during that transition period between Russia's uh, you know Russia going from from 
a communist country or part of this, you know, the main country of the Soviet Union to a capitalist country, which still really mm-hmm. isn't a capitalist country. But I think that there became this mistrust of uh, international liberalism and in, within the Russian uh, populace because they just saw how how much they were getting ripped off. Like we're talking about people coming in and just, you know, a handful of oligarchs buying all the state run the Soviet state ran assets. So buying everything. Buying yeah. industries. Mm-hmm. Like not buying companies, buying industries in these like crony scams. What was the word for it? Kangaroo, kangaroo auctions. Um, auctions, yeah. The kangaroo these, auctions. These, can, these kangaroo auctions where it's I would recommend I always recommend this book and we've talked about this in other episodes. Um Godfather of the Kremlin is a really good book that goes over the the politics of Russia in the nineteen nineties. And I think um, that was a huge damper on just um, the perception of the West in Russia. That's why Russians have told me, actually, why um, Putin is so popular in Russia, because Putin threw a lot of those Russian oligarchs in jail Mm. and exiled Boris Brzezowski, um, you know, who is one of the worst offenders. So I think that's where you get that division. You're painting this picture, right? Like, this is how it starts to deteriorate. Like, how, other than just the abject poverty that came out of, you know, um, you know, out of the late 90s in, in Russia, like, what else started pulling the U.S. and and Russia, you know, up, or the West in general apart from one another? So, on a, on a, a more geopolitical front, um, the war in Yugoslavia had deeply, had a deeply coercive impact on Russia's relations with the West because Clinton committed himself to supporting NATO enlargement in 1994. And Mm. the war in Yugoslavia helped ensure that Europe was still going to have security problems despite the end of the Cold War. Um, You know, what this also did was that it, it undermined the notion that Russia could be a reliable partner in solving problems in Eastern Europe. And this is a topic for another day, so I don't want to dive too deep into it. But during the war in Kosovo, Russia and U.S. were really close to going to war. Like they were very, very close to going to war. The only reason they didn't is because a British general, a field marshal named Michael Jackson, um, <laughs> Michael Jackson, um, he refused to call. He refused to follow uh, General Wesley Clark's uh, orders to engage with the Russians in the battle because uh, on, no, General, uh, I don't want to go to war with the Russians. But he he see <laughs> he was like, I'm not starting World War Three for you. Um, but you're ignorant. I don't want to start World War Three. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But um, <laughs> I think the issue of NATO enlargement is the most hostile thing surrounding this conflict. And this could be the issue that ultimately, I mean, if there is a war, um, the issue of NATO enlargement would be the catalyst. Sure. Just to give you some background, and this goes into your question about, you know, what else made relations between the U.S. and Russia deteriorate. Um, After the Berlin Wall goes down, George H.W. Bush promises Mikhail Gorbachev at the Malta summit that the U.S. is not going to take advantage of their crumbling empire. Well, a few months later, you know, there's an immediate obstacle thrown in there. Um, Easton... It's something I know you know a lot about is East mm. and West Germany start the process of reunification. Oh, yeah. That was well, a complicated one. <laughs> well, what makes things complicated is that West Germany is a member of NATO. So if they reunify, like, what happens? Does the whole country be part of NATO? Like, what? That, like how the hell did you the, figure that out? That was the big question of the day. Also, the fall of the wall is super interesting, too. I, I hope we have an opportunity to talk about that um, in this series because— kind of happened by accident but yeah um yeah that was a big question like what what happens nato wise to to germany now that they're reunified so so um the secretary of state james baker he negotiates a deal with the soviets that lets east germany reunite with west germany and then it lets them be part of nato so they agree like you guys reunify will you know be you guys can be part of NATO. Um, in return, though, the U.S. promises not to enlarge NATO, not one more inch to the east. Mm-hmm. So this is <laughs> that this really is like the the ultimate like <laughs> schism. Like this is like the te- this is what is ultimately leading to the tensions um, between. I mean, there's other things, but I think this is the ultimate um, difference of opinion between Russia and and the West mm-hmm. because the Clinton administration reneges on that deal. And this isn't what this wasn't a signed deal. Here's the problem. They never, never got this in paper. It was a this wasn't a, this right. wasn't a signed treaty. This was verbally communicated from from basically from George H.W. Bush's administration to um, Boris Yeltsin. So it never was something that was like a treaty that the United States will not, um, you know, go and and actively uh invite other countries closer to Russia's borders into NATO. There was never a treaty that uh, um, specifically, you know, laid that out. Even if there were, you know, as we see in in modern politics today, former presidents or presidential administrations, at least now, feel no obligation to honor any type of treaty that previous (laughs) administrations have 
yeah. uh, have honored. You can see that with Trump and the Iran deal, you know, right. for example. Mm-hmm. You know, That's it, a big it's, example. There's no um, incentive. They don't give a fuck. So even if it wasn't <laughs> writing, it probably yeah. wouldn't have mattered. As, especially if it wasn't writing. They're like, yeah, doesn't apply to me. Doesn't apply to me. This is a new administration. There's new. There's a national security threat. There's a national right. security yeah. threat. Yeah, that's troubling because that's, then it, it really kind of destabilizes the the word of you know the United States. Like you know, whatever happened, word is bond. You know, like that's not a thing anymore. Well, you can use the word national security threat and, and basically For get anything. away with anything. You're like, oh my god, there's an army of puppies. We need to kill them all. There's their national security threat. Like you can use national security threat as a pretext to do anything that you want in U.S. politics. Like, just think about like all the shit that we were able to pull off after 9/11, right. as far as surveillance and just invasion of privacy. And oh, how like we've been in Afghanistan for like 20 years. <laughs> now, yeah, not even that, but just like through w- with a domestic population. Like, oh, you're talking about internally. Yeah, internal, yeah, internally, internally, yeah. you mm-hmm. can do whatever you want. Just fill out a fucking form to sign up for a credit card processor and look at the questions that are asked that are due to the Patriot Act. Like they're like, totally you involved invasive. with a te- terrorist organization. Yeah, like just <laughs> go like, sign up. No, Anyone who's and why would I business, ever say yes? <laughs> any small business owner will probably know that when you sign yeah. up for credit card processing, you the shit they ask you in that in like enough form. It happened to us when we when we put together our our business. You yeah, know? it's like they, they ask us the same questions, and it's it's kind of hilarious. It's like why would we ever say oh, you got me? I'm a part of a terrorist organization. Why would you? Like it's just kind of silly, honestly. Yeah. Um, but that's just one example. So um, back to NATO expansion. Okay, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic. They're invited into NATO in 1999, and then NATO expands again in 2004 to Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, uh, Slovakia, and Slovenia. So well, hold on to that point real quick, though. But this is something that I actively do want to research over the course of this um, bit, and I feel like it'll be very important about like the invitation or the expansion process of NATO. I'm actually super curious about this, you know, to see, is it truly that the Clinton administration or at least you know, the, the powers that be in NATO are actively recruiting people? Or is it that these countries request access to these countries? Or And, and I imagine that the answer is probably extremely nuanced. Um, and like what, what powers play into, you know, how these new um how these new countries get added to NATO because it, it doesn't, you know, obviously Poland as an example, didn't join NATO by force, right? Like we didn't force them to join NATO. They joined free willingly. They want to be part of NATO, you know, like, right. But also we're trying to expand it. You're also, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's both. It's both. I just want to know more about that. It takes, I think ultimately a lot of what happens is that, so Russia will be like a, uh, expansion of NATO is a threat to us. Mm-hmm. We must mm-hmm. amass troops and train troops. And then, therefore, it then creates the perception of a threat from these countries like Bulgaria or St- Estonia. And they're like, oh, right. no, Russia's amassing troops. We need to join NATO. It ultimately mm-hmm. is like a self-fulfilling prophecy on in terms of Russia. But also, mm-hmm. I think it's just to box them in. Like, 
from the Western perspective or the U.S.'s perspective, it is really to box them in as much as far right. as possible, like to, to limit their options as much as possible because they don't want them. They're trying to, to limit their influence within these states because Russia is one of the few countries in the world that is – uh, makes decisions independent from U.S. influence. Like mm. they will do things outside of the allowable foreign policy positions uh, that the U.S. has. Like right. um, intervening in Syria is probably the greatest example. Yeah, they, yeah, totally. The United States but, obviously did not want, did not support the government of Bashar al-Assad. The Russians, but, but so so I can make a, similar arguments here uh, uh, for for both of these things. Like in the way that Russia. Um, you know, got involved with Syria, like S- Syria didn't, you know, they weren't invaded by Russia, like Syria invited them. So it was, this is a deal that was, you know, put together between Russia and Syria. And as far as the U.S. is concerned, you know, that's none of their business. That's none of the U.S.'s business. It is their business because they want to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. <laughs> like, right, that's where right, it comes their right. But like, literally, though, if we're talking about two to tango, right? Like, really, this is just the, the this is Syria as a country. They're a sovereign nation. They said, "Yeah, sure, Russia, come help us do some stuff." M- much in the same way, because I can flip this on the other, the other side here. In the same way that it's none of Russia's business if Slovakia wants to be a part of NATO, that's none of their business. This isn't the Soviet Union anymore. They can join if they want to, and they should have been thoughtful about this and try to find ways to exercise their influence in places like Slovakia and Slovenia, etc., in ways that would dissuade them from wanting to to join nato and it seems like the response that they've always had throughout this history has always just been like let's just put mad troops on the border <laughs> you know like let's 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 flex our dick muscle and see if that works and it doesn't always work well it's, it's certainly comes, recently but yeah it at least becomes, then it didn't work oh sorry it, it it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy uh i think a lot of times but in terms of like going against russian just to go back on what you said about like it's none mm-hmm. of the United States' business whether you know when Syria invited Russia in, mm-hmm. that's not how they think. Like the people making our foreign not. policy don't think like that. Like oh well, I guess it's none of our business. Like they want they make identified a policy of removing Bashir al-Assad as a president of Syria. Um, anyone who gets in their way is a geopolitical. Uh, obstacle and we must find a way to neutralize them so they don't um care about those types of uh um boundaries that Mm -hmm. countries have Mm -hmm. but um in 2008 russia finally puts their foot down and Mm -hmm. there are rumors that nato will be providing membership to the ukraine so this is where russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov warns the U.S. Uh, you know, yet means yet. I think a lot of people have heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, an invitation to either Ukraine or Georgia will trigger some type of Russian reaction because at that point, then they're just completely boxed in. If Ukraine or Russia or uh, Georgia, me, Ukraine or Georgia are part of NATO, but before the conversation started started up about bringing the Ukraine into NATO, the West was um, the, the West was keeping uh, Leonid Kukma at arm's length because he was transparently very, very corrupt. Like there's all sorts of really bad scandals tied to him, 
you know, including things like murdering journalists, which Whoa. caused Kukma to seek tighter relations with, with Vladimir Putin in Russia. Um, this starts to transition in like 2004 when during a, during the 2004 Ukrainian presidential election, um, Russia saw their opportunity to finally get their guy in Kiev and they supported uh, Yanukovych. Um, Yanukovych was the guy that was ultimately ousted during the coup later in 2014. But he ran for president in 2004 and initially won. But the election was recalled due to voter fraud. And Yushchenko won, won the election in the recall. But the Yushchenko's agreement... the, the, the comedian guy, right? No, that's Zelensky. Oh, that's the guy bad. right now. I get them so, all confused. I mean, they're all similar sounding names. So um, the agreement to rerun the election turned a Russian victory into a Russian defeat on the world stage. And what this episode episode ultimately does, it merges Ukrainian-Russian relations into Russia's relations with the West. So I guess this is kind of like a long-form answer of how how U.S. relations and Russian relations eventually deteriorated. It was a combination of all these things, the war in Yugoslavia, NATO expansion, and ultimately the uh, recalled election in 2004 uh, in Ukraine. Now, the Orange Revolution that takes place afterwards promised domestic reform and integration with Europe, but neither really occurred. Just intense corruption continued. And going back to the, you know, Ukraine's entrance into NATO, or at least the rumors of that, mm. in 2008, the U.S. supported giving Ukraine a membership action plan to join NATO. And that's and that's, that, when that's the steps that they give you to, like, you know, you yeah. have to do these things in order to be admitted into NATO, right? Yeah. And this is when, you know, Russia said, yet means yet, like, no mm. fucking way. And Germany and France who are dependent on Russian gas, they blocked that proposal. They were like, this is fucking nuts. We can't do this. Like, this is going to, you know, do you know how this is going to impact us economically? Right. So. And Germany and France are both in NATO. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is, makes it even more of a clusterfuck because as you said, if they're dependent on Russian gas, they don't want to piss off Russia because then they get hurt um, economically. On the other side, the, the United States is pushing for, the idea of this membership action plan for Ukraine, which is kind of like, on the one hand, sticking it to Russia, but also shooting itself, NATO, in the foot, uh, you know, in 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 um, Germany and France. That's it's kind of complicated Mexican standoff there. But look, like, let's go back to uh, to Yanukovych. Mm -hmm. um, he enters back. He enters the political scene back in 2010, and he's like a pragmatic politician. Um, you know, he's seen as a viable answer and he wins the 2010 election. And this election is actually legitimate. Like if you look at the election results um, of 2010, it's split. Like it's totally split by region of the country. Like the entire eastern part of the country is voting for Yanukovych. And then the, the, West, the entire western part of the country is voting for, um, I can't think of her name, the 
the lady, the other one, the other the woman who was running, who was super corrupt and skeevy. Um, I mean, both all of them are really corrupt and skeevy. But upon his um, election, he immediately tar- starts taking dramatic steps to consolidate political power and sell resources and, and ultimately gain the support of Russia. Like he's still Russia's guy, even though the elections were legitimate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were, they were voting, obser- uh, you know, the voter observation groups that were monitoring the, the election and there was no red flags. What added fuel to the fire here is that Ukraine in 2008, 2009, they were really hit hard by the global financial crisis. Right. And they were in a position where they had to choose who was going to bail them out. And the question became, was it going to be the EU who was going to bail them out? Or was it going to be Russia who was going to bail them out? And by late 2013, um, you know, Ukraine, Russia, and the West had gotten themselves into a contest and in which a compromise really couldn't be uh, figured out. And Ukrainians were forced to make a binary choice between dependency on the EU or being a dependency on Russia. Mm-hmm. Most Ukrainians supported close economic ties with both Russia and the European Union. Like but, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like which would be the lot that like was, That's the smart idea. The <laughs> ideal thing. It's like, yeah. okay, let's all have trading relationships and not be antagonistic with each other. Mm-hmm. Um but this process was made impossible and it was un- it, it wasn't made feasible either because not being a member of either block would just create isolation and further undermine Ukraine's economy. Um, so it's the you know, kind of you're either with us or you're against us mentality that's that's like, you know, that's going on here. Exactly. So when when he announces that Ukraine was not going to sign the uh, you know the association agreement with the EU, this sparked this massive violent protesting that was allegedly funded by the United States and other EU countries, um, which was directed by Victoria Nuland, who's now in the Biden administration. Hmm. And in 2014, Yukunovich was voted out of office by parliament. Um, he was exiled into Russia and Crimea. The A Russian-speaking part of Ukraine says... Fuck that. They vote to leave Ukraine and it becomes part of Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Russian military was already there. You know, like it wasn't yeah. like Russia invaded it. They already had a military base there. So they were just, you know, they threw up their Russian flags and they're like, OK, we have the parliament. We, we have all the government administrative administration buildings. This is now Russia. They gladly welcomed the annexation. Um, but in response, this is where the conflicts really begins. The the government in Kiev launches pretty much a domestic war on terror on the eastern pro-Russian part of the country because Russia now is supporting Russian separatists in the eastern part right. who don't want to be part of the government in Kiev. Specifically um, in the Donbass region. Mm-hmm. Specifically in the Donbass region. And it's the war has gotten very violent. And one of the issues is that at this time, at least, 2014, Ukraine doesn't really have a military. They they don't—at the end of the Soviet Union, one of the big differences between Ukraine and Russia, because 
Ukraine's a big country. Ukraine yeah, has dude, it's it's like bigger than most of the European countries. Just the Donbass region itself is is comparably sized to like Moldova, to like Slovenia, Chechia. Like there's a lot of countries that are quite smaller than just the region that we're talking about for this particular conflict. Let alone all of Ukraine. Ukraine's fucking big. It has 50 million people there mm-hmm. living in Ukraine, which mm-hmm. is among the highest in Europe. Uh, you know, Germany has, Russia has the largest population, which is around 100, 150 million people. Germany has what, like 80 million, last 80 time million I checked, people. Yeah. France mm-hmm. has something around 80, 70, 70 to 80 million people. Ukraine is up there population wise. Uh, yet the question is, like, you know, why does they both have assets from the Soviet Union? Um, they both inherited parts of the Soviet Union's military. Why did Russia or, you know, Russia, or let me rephrase this. It's not really a matter of why is what they did is Russia uh, maintain a policy of, of fostering and adding and, you know, and, and uh, advancing and their military, advancing their, their military and Ukraine kind of disbanded it mm-hmm. during those period. During I, I mean, days. I, I, I got to give it to Russia because they, they, they do, much more with so much less you know like their their um you know military budget as an example pales in comparison to ours but they make some technology and they make some some you know specifically their their jets and their and their um surface to air missile systems are incredibly good and their tanks are incredibly good and just the the sheer volume and number that they have they lack in a lot of other places too, but what they do with such little resources, you know, they're they're really really crafty. Let's just put it that way. And and you're right. I don't think that these other you know former so former Soviet states really had the desire or the drive, or maybe just didn't even have the economics really to to invest in the same ways that that Russia did um, into their military to become you know, to maintain dominance. Because realistically. The size and and positioning of uh, Ukraine, they could be a powerful like st- like state in that region. They could be a very powerful military state. Like quite, they quite could, easily. they could. But the I guess the division within the country. Yep. I mean, there's so many things going against it at the same time between the the the, the division, the ethnic division in the country that is fostered by both by Russia and fostered by the West. Right. Um, you know, they're kind of just being torn apart from outside powers. And right. the whole history is just very sad. Well, so... And, so no, go ahead. Oh, keep going. Just one more thing to add. Mm-hmm. Since they don't have a a real military, they relied... In 2014, they were relying on paramilitary groups that they would integrate into their national guard and mm-hmm. the groups the type of groups that they were integrating a lot of them were neo fascist groups <laughs> like they were neo fascist type groups that yep. were like hardcore fucking hitler loving nazis they like, nazis. like that's yeah, who they, they were just call kind of integrate they, they nazis yeah. into yeah. their armed forces and you know, since since the the war started, you know, I, the the official estimate of the death tolls and the you know tens of thousands, but some people think it's a lot higher. And there's been pretty bad atrocities that have taken place, like the um, fire in Odessa that you know that they burnt. Basically, it was like Waco and, U- and Ukraine's right. Waco. There had mm-hmm. been there's been a lot of atrocities, and 
uh, it's 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 pretty bad. And look, um, I, I honestly I think it it is terrible, but it's also I feel like what we should do is we should look at at the the conflict the five day war with Georgia between Russia and Georgia as a almost like as a as a template for the con- uh, conflict with Ukraine because there are so many parallels between the two. And I think looking at that might might give a little bit of context to what's going on right now. So I think looking at the two, you know, uh, I don't want to say that it is predictive, but so far it seems like a lot of the same things have occurred uh, that led up to the five-day war uh, against Georgia with Russia um, that are happening currently in, in Ukraine. So so let's talk a little bit about that. So the, the basic root of this Russia-Georgia conflict you could probably bring it uh, really far back, but I think the real start is in that early 90s period when the USSR like broke apart and Russia and Georgia both were, you know, they became their own independent nations. And what was happening in Georgia, which I imagine was also happening in a lot of other, you know, former Eastern uh, European um, or Soviet blocks, um, block states, was that there was a civil war happening, right? There's a lot of like self-identifying and like, you know, who are we as a nation? And um, a lot of people were trying to turn to, you know, super old, uh, uh, um, you know, like pre-Soviet Union um, nationalism. And so this caused a lot of tension in Georgia. Um and, and Georgia happens to be, be, be located in the uh, just south of, of Russia there, uh, right along the sea, along the Black Sea. And there was these two particular um, provinces or states um, in in Georgia that were particularly a problem for Georgia. It was South Ossetia and uh, Abkhazia. Uh, so uh, South Ossetia is just like uh, along just under the the, the mountain line. Um, between uh, Georgia and Russia, and uh, Abkhazia is in the northwestern coast uh, on the Black Sea. And both of these regions wanted to declare their own independence, right? They they didn't want to be a part of Georgia, and they didn't want to be a part of Russia. They just wanted to be their own thing. Part of this was like like talking about like 20th century, you know, uh, uh, autonomy that they had. Um, but there was a ceasefire in 94, Um uh, for these civil wars, but there was still a lot of tension that was happening in these two particular um, uh, provinces. And the tensions uh, were because of ethnic divides, right? So the uh, Ossetians and the Abkhazians, you know, were ethnically different from the rest of Georgia and from Russia. Uh, and l- like I said before, they, they used to, you know, prior to the, the uh, I should say, after the Ru- Russian Revolution, they had this kind of autonomy. Uh, and they were their own thing for a little bit, and they wanted to get that back. Um, but the EU and NATO, you know, like like you were saying, Henry, they were they were expanding their influence um, in Eastern and, and Central Europe, um, and Russia, and specifically Putin, obviously hated this uh, because it removed that buffer zone, you know, uh, for the West. And uh, so Georgia was. Actually, at this point, the, the the state of Georgia was was becoming more Westernized, right? They were they were joining the sphere of influence of the West and the U.S. and you know so much so that they that they actually joined the U.S. coalition forces fighting in Iraq in two thousand three. Uh, oh wait, I, let me just put a pin on that because that was another big contention in U.S. and Russian uh, divergence because yep. 
the U.S. Russia was supportive of the U.S.'s initial war on terror after 9 11 mm-hmm. because Russia has their own terror problem. Right. Russia has the bat, their terror problem in Chechnya. So they saw that as like a coalition, like, Similar, oh, we can fight right. Islamist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you know, we have our own Islamist problem down in Chechnya. You have your Islamist problem due to your imperial escapades right. in the Middle East. But they did not support the war in Iraq. They were the only, like, they were one of the only big countries who was like nope we don't want any part of that this is gonna really fuck things up and they were right they were 100 percent right <laughs> yeah about their totally predictions. and and so when when we see a state like georgia right joining the u.s in this war uh, of terror in <laughs> iraq um that kind of started creating the sphere of influence that the u.s had or that nato broadly uh would have in georgia and uh this got really intense uh, the year later when um, a pro-Western uh, uh, president was elected. Uh, this was Mikhail um, Saakashvili, uh, and, and that was in 2004. So we got Saakashvili, he's elected, he's pro-Western, and they're also at war in uh, with the U.S. in, in Iraq. Um, so they're becoming very Western. And and George you know, Bush is like, oh, 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 they're so great. They're they're crowning <laughs> of democracy. Oh, exactly, exactly. You know, so uh, at this point, you know, George is trying to break away from the Russian influence, and Russia is trying to hang on to it, right? And this is especially threatening to Russia because if it lost Georgia, it this could be a. Uh, like a domino effect that could ripple outwards for them losing influence over over other formerly Soviet territories like Ukraine, as an example. Uh, and so Saakashvili um, started to crack down on the like separatism, the, the separatist notions inside of Georgia, specifically in those two provinces in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And this kind of kind of sparked these conflicts again, even though the civil war had been over officially, and it started bringing up some of this, uh, uh, you know, separatist uh, ideas. And then also Putin was accused of, you know, basically egging on separatism in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which I'm sure he was a part of it for sure, um, because that was a geo of geopolitical interest to him and to Russia. Um, so Georgia ends up arresting four Russian military officers for allegedly spying. Um, and Russia responded by closing the Georgian, like a bunch of Georgian businesses and deporting Georgian citizens from Russia. Uh, so this is becoming a problem. Uh, so Georgia was basically running towards NATO at full speed at this juncture. Um, and Russia sees this as an opportunity to like basically put the kibosh on 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 the whole idea by flexing its dick muscle. <laughs> um, and so Russia uh, is said to uh, have officially recognized South Ossetia and Abkhazia as a part of Georgia. So they're saying, yes, sure, you are technically a part of Georgia. Um, we're good with that. But at the same time, it's starting to put in its little tendrils into those regions. Um, and basically, it started setting up these Russian economic and political dependencies like so you know, kind of like how uh germany and france were are uh dependent on russia for gas right so they start making um a lot of these political and economic dependencies in those regions on purpose uh and setting those systems up 
And a lot, of, a lot of the people from both of those regions also started getting a shit ton of Russian citizenship, right? So a lot of these people started becoming Russian citizens. They started giving out Russian passports. Um, this is like a, a policy uh, in Russia known as passportization. Passportization. And go figure, the same thing is happening in Ukraine right now. So just remember that part. Uh, in, in the Donbass region, a lot of that is happening. And the same thing happened in Crimea, uh, just before uh, Russia annexed it. So a lot of um, Russian influence uh, in these two uh, regions of, of Georgia, but also specifically Russia started building up some forces on the border for, quote, military exercises. That's kind of happening right now. Um, and basically they started making sure that their local proxies in South Ossetia and in Abkhazia put up enough resistance uh, in Georgia so that uh, Saakashvili, the, the, the president there, would respond, right? Because remember, he doesn't want them to break off and, and be separatists. So on August 8th in 2008, after just straight up months of finger pointing um, and a series of small clashes between South Ossetian military and Georgian military troops, basically Saakashvili ordered... Uh, Georgian troops to capture the uh, South Ossetian capital. So he was like, go ahead, you know, like round it up, like go, go get it. This is what Russia wanted uh, because Russia responded pretty much immediately um, with airstrikes on Georgian positions in South Ossetia, as well as Abkhazia. And the conflict continued for five days. Uh, Russia quickly took control of um, you know both of those capitals there uh, in those regions, and rolled its uh, tanks through uh, Ossetia into Georgia proper, and they stopped something like thirty miles away from uh, the Georgian capital of uh, Tbilisi. I can't pronounce that fucking word, um, but they they stopped only like thirty miles away, uh, which is dangerously close. They probably could have just taken Georgia uh, if they really wanted to, but I think the result of this, you know. Geopolitics aside, about 850 people were killed uh, during that five-day conflict. 35,000-something-plus uh, Georgians were left homeless because, you know, they were basically bombing the shit out of those areas. Um, Russia formally recognized both uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia as independent states. Um, uh, almost no countries in the world have, have joined them uh, in doing so, but... Um, Basically, this this pushed Georgia super far away um, from Russian influence. They'll, they'll probably never turn back at this point. Um, and they they recently signed, well, recently, uh, six years ago, they signed a um, an association agreement with the EU, and that was in 2014. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Well, I think that was really bad policy by George Bush because what it did is it encouraged Georgia to... um, they thought that they had the backing of NATO during this whole thing, that they had yep. the backing of the United States, that they were some prized ally, and they weren't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, when no, Bush yeah, came to shove, is. like, they yeah. let the Russians do whatever the hell they wanted. They let them bomb and and act militarily. And mm-hmm. I think that same thing is going to happen in Ukraine. Like, I think that that template will apply to Ukraine, where Ukraine, I mean, Russia is much more militarily powerful than than Ukraine. If they wanted, if Russia wanted to, they can march over to Kiev Kiev and conquer it. I think that there could be a circumstance or a situation where Russia does something like that in the future, saying, all right, our our options are over. Um, We are going to act militarily. This is a national security threat for uh, Ukraine to... Uh, be part of NATO. We are going to set the line here. We're going to launch a full invasion into Ukraine and take Kiev, and the West will will not be able to do anything except fund separatist movements and things like that, or sep- right. or or fund Ukrainian nationalist movements. So I think that that's a bad that's bad uh, outcome. But I think that provocations and um, assuring Ukraine's. Uh, um, that the United States will have their back no matter what can ultimately lead to an outcome like that. So yeah. I, I don't. So I'm I'm super worried about this because I think a lot of these a lot of the lead up is already in place. So a lot of the shit that already happened in Georgia right before that five day war is exact has already exactly happened. We have in Ukraine already um, the passportization of uh, Russians in uh, the Donbass region. Right. We already have. Um, uh, uh, basically, uh, these operations orchestrated largely by Russian uh, government to get to to fuel separatist uh, identification in those regions. We already saw that happen, you know, in Crimea, and it worked like a fucking charm, right? Because people voted to become Russian, right? Um, and it was like a not exactly a bloodless loss, but it was mostly, you know, like just okay, cool, done. It's going to be a little bit different in in, in the Donbass region, of course, um, because it, it is uh, uh, a bit more entrenched, to say the least. But um, so we've already got the passportization. We already have the amassing of troops and military exercises on the border. Uh, we already have separatist motion um, happening in those regions. We already have the the justification uh, in place because they are quote Russian, right? Uh, and that was the thing that we were talking about a little earlier, you know, um, and uh, all we're really waiting for is for, you know, uh, Zelensky to fuck up and decide to just start rolling tanks into the area to repel any, you know, upri- any separatist uprisings. 
that'll be that'll be the catalyst. And and Zelensky's poll numbers are down right now, and Ukraine is always going through some economic crisis, so it right. could be a political move just to garner support. But it will it will be a mistake. It, w- it, it will be, be a mistake. mistake. But I think I think that I don't think Zelensky's retarded. Like I don't I don't think he's dumb. Um, I don't think he wants he's he's uh. Uh, too gung ho about getting into a full a full on war, but um, I guess we'll see. This is a dangerous situation. I think this is the most dangerous situation on Earth right now. Like as far as like a potential wrong step could lead to the end. This right here, like if something goes wrong in the Ukrainian and this Ukrainian Russian crisis right now, I think this is the um, the. Uh, most probable thing that will destroy the world with a nuclear holocaust i don't i'm not i'm not trying to spread fear i'm just saying if there was going to if you're going to pick one hot spot in the world that could lead to a full-on nuclear holocaust across the country it's this situation Mm -hmm. right here um but i mean i don't think it will i'm just saying well if there is one it's right here for sure I, i i i'd probably agree with that I want to um, I want to end our show today um, because we're coming close uh, here uh, to our usual um, time. But I thought of a fun thought experiment that we can do together, um, and I don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> and I told you about it just before the show, um, but I didn't give you any of the details, uh, and you can attest to that, right, Henry? That is true. Okay, so you just know the topic, and you don't know any of the situations. So we're we're going to play this one out. And the thought experiment is, uh, so I was thinking about how Russia is using this idea that, you know, Crimea was always Russian and therefore its annexation was justified and is kind of playing with this idea, you know, in the Donbass region because it is mostly Russian speaking, majority Russian speaking, I should say. Um, And a lot of people there identify as Russian. Uh, as a pretext or as a justification for its annexation, or at least its in, its involvement, specifically militarily, um, in the region. And so my question is, well, I was thinking about Crimea, and I was thinking about how you said in 50-something, 50, 50, what was it, 9? 50, no, 54? Yeah. yeah, 54. 1954 is when um, uh, uh, Crimea was given to Ukraine. Um, and around the same time, Russia gives, or, you know, uh, I should say not Russia, but specifically, uh, uh, the United States signs Alaska as its, what was it? 15, 49th state, or was it the 50th? 49th. So around the same time we get Alaska and, uh, Ukraine gets Crimea. Um, and, I started thinking about that like, oh, wait, because Russia used to have Alaska. Do you know the story of how Alaska became a state, Henry? Um, I actually really don't know too much about the history of Alaska. I know okay. that it was purchased by Russia. I mean, it was well, purchased we, from We purchased Russia. it from Russia, yeah. basically. Um, that, that's like the simple story. But I think looking at uh, Alaska's history could be a fun way to kind of test the rationality of the Russian military conflicts in Georgia and in Crimea, and perhaps in the near future, the Donbass. Um, The main point that I want you to take away from this is that 
Uh, Russia was in Alaska way before we were and for way longer than we were. Well, it's, it's uh, right. To- I mean, it's almost, con- they used to be connected. Yep. Yep. They used you to be can, connected. I mean, you can technically. I mean, Sarah Palin says it herself. You could look outside of Sarah Palin's backyard and see Moscow. You know? She said that? <laughs> yeah, she said something to that to that effect, which is fucking stupid. <laughs> That's funny. Um, <laughs> you could, um, during the winter, it is possible. I looked it up. You can't walk. Across the Bering Strait? Across the Bering Strait. Like, it's possible. Yeah, it. You can't, like, you can, you'll most likely die if you try doing it. <laughs> yeah. But it is possible if you, like, move at a certain speed and the coldest part of the winter um, to outrun the melting ice. But you have to travel, like, because it's only 50 miles long. Yeah. And, I mean, that's like that's how, that's how you know, human five, beings, like, homo five sapiens miles an made hour. their way across. Yeah. Homo well, sapiens made their way across from, from that from that land bridge because at one point it was it was totally totally land yeah at one um, point it was totally land but or it was totally frozen over but mm-hmm. you could still technically do it now but you mm-hmm. have to be like an extreme athlete if you right. want to if you want they should have a contest i don't know why why isn't that a uh an olympic game or something or some type of like sport a sport track, between the, 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 the russians sport, and the, like trying to and the united states who can run across to the other side faster <laughs> i i want to know yeah. I'd pay to see it. All right. So let's talk a little bit about that history, right? So in, in 1867, um, the Secretary of State of the United States, uh, William Seward, and a Russian envoy, Baron Edward de Stokel, uh, they signed a treaty of cession um, where the Russian Empire basically ceded Alaska to the United States for $7.2 million, which is $113 million in today's money. Um, so fucking bargain, right? Um and this uh, ended Russia's. And look at it now. Years. We pay people to live in Alaska. Yeah, and I'll, I'll get to that. that. That's important. I'll get to that in a second. So, but but what's important about this, uh, even before talking about that, is that this ended a 125 year stint that Russia had in Alaska, and its expansion across the Bering Sea. At one point, their stint in on this side of the world. Uh, went as far south as Fort Ross, California, which is 90 miles from San Francisco. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yep. So they they were all over this fucking area, right? Um, and so today, obviously, Alaska, as you pointed out, uh, Henry, is, is the richest state in the U.S., or at least one of them. Um, and it's because they have so much natural resources like, you know, petroleum, so gas and, and, and shale and shit like that, but also gold and fish. And, um, you know, there's a shit ton of like logging that goes on there. And it's also a strategic, you know, geopolitical location because you can see Russia. And also, uh, very recently because in the Arctic circle, all of the glaciers and shit are melting and it's like uncovering all of this new natural resources that everyone wants a piece of. Uh, so now that we have Alaska, we basically have a stake to the claim there. Um, so Alaska is super important. Um, but, you know, this goes back like super long ago, like in the 16th century, uh, 1581 specifically, Russia um, basically overran a Siberian territory uh, known as the Khaninate of Sibir, which was controlled by a great grandson of uh, Genghis Khan. So it's pretty interesting. Um, and by taking over this particular territory, they opened up, uh, Siberia and within 60 years, they, uh, they had expanded all the way to the Pacific. Um, and in the early 18th century, 
Peter the Great, who is famous for creating Russia's first navy, uh, he basically wanted to know how far does this landmass go? Like how far east does this go? So he kept pushing. And in 1741, uh, a dude named Vitus Bering uh, crossed the strait uh, that is now known as the Bering Strait because of him. And he ended up in um, uh, uh, what is today a village called Yakutat, Alaska, which uh, is near the uh, mountain Mount St. Elias. Um, There's an interesting tro- story too. Like a, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but they basically on, on the way back home, they <laughs> ended up shipwrecking, which was crazy. Uh, and, and Bering actually died um, shortly after. Um, but uh, what the surviving crew fixed the ship. They stocked it full of you know, hundreds of sea otters. This was like a big thing. Um, foxes and fur seals. Uh, and they were, it was just so ridiculously abundant there. Uh, and they took it all back to Siberia and they impressed, they impressed some Russian guys. Um, and this basically set up like a, like a, like a gold rush, um, you know, to the area from Siberia because it was just so rich with natural resources and like specifically furs and, and pelts and things like that. Um, so at at the peak of it, Rus- Russians in Alaska, um, there were only about 800 uh, at, at its peak. And also, they were fucking far away from St. Petersburg, which was the, the capital at the time. So communication was a super big problem. Um, and also, Alaska was just fucking really far north. You know, it's cold in Alaska, so it was hard to do agriculture there so they had to import a lot of food and therefore it, it kind of like li- naturally limited the the number of settlers that they can um uh put in alaska so they, they that's that's actually when they started going further south and initially they they just went south so that they can uh do trade they were li- just looking for people to trade with um uh and they had eventually found s- the spaniards there and they were trading with the spaniards to try to get uh enough supplies to to hold up their alaskan colony um, but eventually they set up their own settlement. Uh, I mentioned this before, Fort Ross in 1812. Um, and this is like, again, super close to San Francisco, which is crazy. I didn't even know this before just recently. Um, but within like 30 years after that, Russians were like seriously questioning whether they can continue, um, you know, holding up in, in Alaska because it just wasn't profitable anymore. They had decimated the sea otter population. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the other natural resources were starting to uh, dwindle and then also it's just hard to defend alaska <laughs> you know because it's so remote uh and it was so far from their capital so and and also russia was in you know a little bit of a pickle they they were short on cash because they were in a war in crimea no less so that's a funny callback uh so at the at that point they were just like all right we got to sell this shit so in the 1840s um the United States had, had basically been on full manifest destiny mode, right? They had uh, expanded into Oregon. They annexed Texas. Uh, they fought a war with Mexico and they got California. Um, and, you know, the, the U.S. kind of saw Alaska as like a potential, you know, cash cow. They're like, oh, shit, we can probably get gold there uh, and fur and all this other stuff. And they also wanted to trade with China and Japan, go call back to, you know, our... Uh, series on both of those countries. Um, but also the U.S. was worried about England, um, you know, setting up a territory in that in that area. Uh, so they were just like, all right, let's, let's go ahead and buy this. So they came to a deal 
uh, and the deal was again $7.2 million at the time or $113 million in our money today, which is a fucking steal. I said this before, but uh, they got, the US got 370 million acres of land, um, yeah, just ridiculous amounts of, of th- hundreds, hundreds of billions, incalculable amounts of money in natural resources like whale oil, fur, copper, gold, fish, timber. Like on and on and on. There's just millions of things that they can that they can harvest from Alaska, and and like you said, Henry, uh, you know, at this point, there's no sales or income tax in in Alaska, and every resident gets a stipend, so they they get their freedom dividend over there, which is crazy. Um, I wish we had that here, uh, <laughs> and you know. Um, like today, Alaska is super important to us because of obviously all the resources, but also because it's you know, strategic defense um, reasons. And and now we get to the point of 1959, and, and we're coming to the the thought experiment. I promise, Henry. Um, in 59, Eisenhower signed the Alaska Statehood Act and made Alaska an official state. And that's only five years after Khrushchev transferred Crimea to Ukraine, right? So. Uh, in this time, uh, or at least by the time of secession, which was in the 1800s, there was only about 50,000 uh, indigenous peoples in uh, Alaska and 483 Russians, uh, but also uh, a, a somewhat big population of, of Creoles. So these are um, uh, Russian men and indigenous women were having babies. So there's about 1,400 of those. Uh, so they outnumbered the actual Russians. Um, and today, Alaska has a population of about almost 800,000, um, of which 120,000 are natives and only 2% are of Russian descent. So what does this have to do with Russia-Ukraine conflict today? Okay, so here's, here's the actual thought experiment. Imagine if there was more of a significant population of Russians in Alaska today. Would this be just cause for Russia to defend Russians in Alaska like they do in the Donbass region? Well, you can make that same analogy for Brooklyn. Like, I'm sure there's more Russians in Brooklyn than there are Alaska. <laughs> or right, any but, part you know, they don't of, have a historical presence in the East Coast. It. Yeah, but they don't have a, a historical presence in Brooklyn, right? So, like, technically— I mean, up until, Russian... up until like, the 1910s, 20s, I mean, they, they start coming in—I mean— yeah, but as emigrants, right, we're talking about, like, technically Russian presence was in Alaska longer than Alaska has been a state in the United States. You know, Alaska has been a state in the U.S., you know, by itself, the fact that Alaska is a state doesn't make geographic sense, right? It's definitely much more Russian in terms of its proximity to the mainland than it is American. Um, but, like, imagine, <laughs> so like, imagine for a moment, you know, Russia's like, oh, well, you know, Alaska's always been Russian. You know, this dates back to the 1500s when fucking, you know, when Bering crossed the Bering Straits, you know, like, and they start making this idea. And so they start issuing Russian passports to Russian Americans or like Russian Creoles in, in Alaska. And then maybe they start whipping up some proxies. In, yeah, but these people are American. <laughs> these people well, speak, that, you could say the same Russian thing heritage. about Ukrainians. You could say the same thing about these Ukrainians. They are Ukrainian nationals. No, they but just they don't to be speak, Russian. No, but they're dominant Russian speakers. Like they speak Russian as a yeah, first but language. It, the language like, doesn't mean Russian. shit. <laughs> like the language doesn't mean shit. The the, the, the language is American. Everything. The Inuit people in Alaska speak Inuit languages. They speak native languages, but they're American. 
They're very different from, from other Americans, but they are American, right? So it's not the language. And it, the, it the is, Russians would technically be able to say— It is the language and national heritage. They have ceased to be Russian anymore, and they are now American citizens who are born in America. And no, Russia has no claim or, or pretext to I don't know, man. I don't know. That I don't, I, <laughs> resources in Alaska belong to them because there are descendants of, like, the first colonists to, or the first white people in, in Russia. Like— mm-hmm. There's also no political will for Alaskan, those Russian uh, Alaskans who are the descendants of the first colonists to be part of (laughs) Russia. Like they have a pretty good thing going on with not paying a federal income tax and not paying or not paying a state income tax and not paying, uh, getting a stipend and getting all these benefits. And uh, there's. No way the Russia, even if there was like, hey, let's like we got this plan to create a separatist <laughs> movement in Alaska between the Russian colonists. Uh-huh. There's there's no way that Russia could pull it off because we're not like the United States is the most powerful country in the world. So right, of course, do, we wouldn't, like, we wouldn't, couldn't wouldn't even cool think about that. doing that. Like, but but here's the, the there's funny political part consequences is, for doing oh, that. De- definitely, like you the, could the fuck around is, with little Ukraine or little Georgia or other countries. That's kind of what not, I. That's what I want to get to because because it, they wouldn't be able to pull it off against the United States because we're powerful, right? But the the urge for the United States to want to push back against a separatist, like a Russian separatist, uh, you know, uh, 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 environment in, in Alaska is the exact same response that the Ukrainian government has against a separatist motion in Crimea or in Donbass. They don't want that to happen. But they're just not the United States. They're not superpower. So I, I, they get bullied <laughs> about I it. I get w- what the point you're trying to make is that mm-hmm. we wouldn't like it if they did it to us type of thing. Right. However, I think that there's a lot more reception to a nationalist movement in Ukraine because, like, you know, they they identify they're ethnically Russian. Like, they're, they're, of, they of speak, they're of, speaking the language. They're grand. They're parents are or their grandparents are probably or could be people that were transferred there from russia mm-hmm. um so there's a lot more linkage of in course and, and in, in the thought experiment i also like assumed that the russian population in in russia in alaska was much larger and much more russian you know something more, okay let's like, just all can, right let's just for, for the sake of the thought of experiment let's just say that there were these like russian communities that still spoke like vlad like, hey, yeah. Boris, but they we, just happen to be American because they're in Alaska. Oh, oh, now you have to live under the banner of American government. Oh, hey, down North America, we want to be back <laughs> with Mother Russia. Exactly. Oh, the right. Inuit, the Inuit. <laughs> but yeah, let's just say if there is that type of population, like these, right. uh, these uh, <laughs> Russians. <laughs> hey, Vlad. Hey, Shmuel. I mean, that's more Jewish. Like, hey, Vlad. Like, <laughs> um. Well, and they got a lot of guns up there in, in Alaska too, so it, they could seriously put up a, a fight if they if they wanted to. If this in this thought experiment, like they would yeah. actually have a militia, and they have so much frontier too to hide them mm-hmm. around, so they could just right. hide. There's so many mountain ranges, guerrilla warfare, straight up. Well, I'm sure I'm sure that would be quite quite the problem <laughs> if if they go in the in the uh, the. Alaskan mountain range, and they start doing like these guerrilla attacks on 
Juno or Anchorage. <laughs> or Anchorage. <laughs> yeah. Anchorage is a war zone in itself. There's like, it's like the meth capital of the country. Oh, yeah. So maybe the meth would get the Russians before the <laughs> the United States would need to Since intervene. All that free money goes right in the, right to meth. Right to meth. Yeah. Right to meth. That's I mean, I would do meth too if I lived, if I lived in an environment where there was only like, what, ninety days of like light. <laughs> I don't know I don't what know. the real I don't know about that. Yeah, cycle is, but I know it's, it gets quite depressing during. I know their suicide times. rate is super high. Yeah, because it, they're in their little vitamin D deficiencies. Vi- yeah, vitamin D deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, yeah, that, that I, was a that was a fun way to just point out the the kind of the fucked up nature of this. And the the, the point though is that I guess that I want to make in general is that like nobody cares about the people, you know, on either of these sides. Like the Ukrainians don't like the Ukrainian government doesn't give a shit about the people in Donbass. They just don't want to cede territory. And and the Russians government doesn't give a shit about the people in Donbass. They just want to maintain influence over the region. I think the yeah I agree with you like these governments don't give a shit about the people there. I think the the tragedy is is that democracy. Like if you look at the election, um, their their election in two thousand fourteen, like mm-hmm. it was very very slim margins. It was very clear. Uh, it's kind of like civil war voting. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Um, it there was clearly a vote on ethnic lines. The problem is with a democracy, it's like majority rules. So effectively, one ethnic group rules over the other one under one government. Right. And when a country is divided like that already, then it creates for some serious problems when the, especially when the central government is is grabbing up more and more power. So I think that's what's ultimately is the issue is that. You know, maybe there should be an Eastern Ukraine, Ukraine and a Western Ukraine. Like maybe they should just divorce, have a civil divorce where they can maybe. do what they want. Maybe. But good luck getting anyone to agree to that, right? Yeah. I mean, that's these governments don't give a fuck about these people at all. Right. They're just using them as pawns to, you know, for their own, to enrich themselves. Um, but that's that's my piece. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap this one up then. We will be we will be launching this into a series um, where we go back and forth into you know the modern day geopolitical uh, problems going on in Europe, along with the formation of the states in Eastern Europe over the past a thousand years. So I hope you guys get excited for that. Kind of like our Japanese series that we did that we just wrapped up. I think we learned a lot from that series, and I think well this one this one will even be better. Um, do you have anything to say before we say our goodbyes? Talk about that video thing that you want to put on our Patreon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I discovered something cool, uh, and I, I realized that when I do research for the show here, uh, a lot of the times I have to, like, I want to look at a map because I want to know, like, how is it, you know, geospatially. And the one thing that, uh, we're going to do right after the show here is, is test out a little video format where we kind of talk about you know, a brief um, you know, synopsis of what's going on uh, currently, and we'll actually be looking at a map and drawing at a, on a map live um, and uh, kind of showing 
where are all these places in the world for the people that don't know where they are, but also why they might be geospatially relevant, right? And and um, and by geospatially, I just mean like where in the world they are and why they're relevant. Um, so yeah, uh, th that should be fun. We're going to do that right after here, and we'll post that on the Patreon. So if you know, if you guys want to support us, you know, a really great way to do that would be to uh, uh, join our Patreon. There's all different levels of support that you can offer us, but we also offer new content uh, that you don't get from the regular podcast. We did several episodes um, in the past couple of weeks uh, that are extra, uh, and this will be a little extra bonus. So uh, look forward to that. Yep, and you also get access to our Slack where we all talk and communicate, and it's a fun little community. Um, all right. Um, another way to support our show is to rate and review the podcast. Um, if you're on an Apple device or if you listen to Apple Podcasts, just go in the top right-hand corner, click on the five-star, write a review, say, hey, you guys are great, or hey, you guys suck, whatever you prefer. We prefer the you guys are great thing more than <laughs> you guys suck. But yeah, leave us a, a rating and review, um, and then we will see you next week. Peace. Peace. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.